Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Ho. Oh, H to the OV. I used to move snowflakes by the OZ. I guess even back then you can call me CEO of the ROC. Ho, fresh out the frying pan into the fire. I be the music biz number one supplier. Flyer than a piece of paper bearing my name. Got the hottest chick in the game wearing my chain. That's right, Ho. Not DOC, but similar to them letters. No one could do it better. I check chatter like a food inspector. My homie Strick told me, dude, finish your breakfast. What's good, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Amatelica TIS podcast with your host, yours truly, Jai Shields, here on this Friday, Football Friday, December the 8th, the year 2023. Jam packed show for you here today, week 14 of the National Football League. Has already started with the Thursday night football game last night, but it, the 14th Sunday of the NFL regular season is about a couple of days away. Lots to talk about, lots to discuss in terms of Week 14, and the NFL is concerned uh, with the game of the week being the Sunday night game between the uh, New England, the New England Patriots, between the Philadelphia Eagles and the Dallas Cowboys on the for that will decide in all intents and purposes the NFC East division uh, lead and title heading into the last uh, what uh, three three four weeks of the 2022 NFL regular season. We'll discuss that. We'll discuss. Uh, Shohei Otani, where will he end up? Will he have a new home by uh, as soon as by the time this recording is already released later on today, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? I mean, where will he end up? Uh, the Shohei Otani, uh, the transcendent talent that remains to be seen. We'll get into that. Also, get into some free agency news. Alex Verdugo, Juan Soto are both Yankees. Craig Kimbrell is an Oriole. I'll sound off on that. Um, and Mookie Betts sounds like he's going to be a second baseman for the 2000 and uh, for the 2024 season for the Dodgers. I don't know why, but I mean, I'll give you my two cents on that. Some week 14 games among the Eagles and the Cowboys, Bills, Chiefs, Ravens, Ra- Ravens, Rams, Jaguars, and Browns, and yes, somehow, some way, the Bengals. And the Colts game is very significant heading into Sunday's festivities. I'll preview that and all those games, plus the Week 14 picks across the National Football League coming up a little bit later in the show. And yet again, thanks to the glorious wonders of NFL football in primetime, and how obviously the phrase any given Sunday is still a thing, and you might as well in any given Sunday or Monday night or Thursday night or starting next weekend, Saturday afternoon and Saturday night. I mean, with the NFL, you just never know, and that's why you got to play the games because I did not anticipate uh, when I saw that this game was this Thursday night football game uh, for this week, when I saw it, When the schedule came out back in May and when they previewed it during the during the uh, Seahawks and Cowboys game last week and they had to put Bill Belichick on the uh, as like the on the as the player card, you know, for, for the promo graphic for Amazon that night. 
I was like, well, that's a game I won't have to waste my time and waste showtime talking about on uh, December the 8th. Uh, how you doing? Keep it moving. Garbage game. On to the next. And maybe I can get a show done in a half hour for a change. But as always, the NFL and and the festivities that is the National Football League in 2023 had other ideas. And I will have to begin and have no choice but to begin with the absolute, if you're a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, disgraceful monstrosity that was on Thursday Night Football last night. First off, let me let me let me break it down like a fraction, okay? I have been on record for this is the fifth year I've been doing this show, the sixth football season that I have quote-unquote air quotes covered doing in part of doing this show. And if you were to go back to 2018 and 19, certainly 2020 and 2021, two years ago, I was on record, officially on record, and said this and screamed this and preached this ad infinitum. I screamed and yelled literally on this week's episode of the Wednesday Night Tailgate, the show that I do with Anthony Zavala and uh, Mr. Uh, Craig the Crapper, who likes to go out of his way to crap on every attra- every attractive woman on Instagram that I, uh, you know, that I find attractive, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, I screamed and yelled this to the high heavens two days ago on Wednesday, saying how Tomlin is overrated. He's got to go. He his he's reached his expiration date. The Pittsburgh Steelers are not a good football team. The never having a sub five hundred season stat and accomplishment, you know, technically speaking, is one of the most overrated stats and most overrated accomplishments in pro football and in all of American sports. And that the Pittsburgh Steelers. If they are in the business of winning championships, they ha- with the six rings, which I, I as a Bengals fan, have heard about all my freaking life. When all of my football fandom life, I hear I've heard it ad infinitum. We got the six rings, even even before the Patriots caught up to them and got the six. I got six. We we the Pittsburgh Steelers have six rings. The Patriots prior to twenty what was that twenty eighteen. They they don't. The Steelers, the Steelers don't. The Ravens don't. Cowboys, 49ers, no. It's the Pittsburgh and the Bengals. Huh, forget it. We are the Pittsburgh Steelers with six rings, and you're not. And if the Steelers still have that attitude and still have that mindset in 2023, and they're still in the business of winning championships, Mike Tomlin has to go now he has to go now the pittsburgh steelers ladies and gentlemen in a four to five day span have lost back to back games at home to teams with a combined record heading into their respective games of four and twenty The Pittsburgh Steelers have lost back-to-back home games in a span of five days to two teams 
whose combined record heading into their respective games on Sunday afternoon and on Thursday night, combined records of of 4 and 20. The two worst teams that are going to finish with top five draft picks come the, come the NFL draft this upcoming spring. And the Pittsburgh Steelers, who were 7-4 heading into the Cardinal game and 7-5 coming into the game last night, who are in playoff contention with the Cleveland Browns, who are putting their season, what's left of it, together with spit, grit, and a whole lot of duct tape because Deshaun Watson's out for the year, Nick Chubb is out for the year, Miles Garrett has dealt with some injury issues. They had to start Joe Flacco last week against the Rams on the road. We've chronicled the issues with the Cincinnati Bengals, not just with coaching, but the obvious with no Joe Burrow for the remainder of the season starting two weeks ago when we played them. The Chargers can't get out of their own way in the AFC West. It is as wide open an AFC playoff picture minus the juggernauts, essentially the Ravens, the Chiefs, and Miami, Jacksonville, you can throw in at your own discretion. It's as wide open an AFC playoff picture as it's been in a long, long time. And what did Mike Tomlin's coach Steelers do with two opportun- two easy gifted wins, they should be nine and four. They had an opportunity to go from seven and four to nine and four in a five day period, and they pissed it down the drain. There's no excuses. There's no excuse for that. And I have said on this program. Time and time and time and time and time again, and have been and have screamed it on tw- on Twitter, Instagram, threat. I have been everywhere, shouting this from the rooftops. Is that you guys saying you guys are falling for for the okie doke and falling for the smoke and mirrors and falling for 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 the the um the the, the mirage and the BS. Behind the eight and eight, nine and seven, nine and eight records, you're fa- you're falling for the bull jive. Tom and the Steelers are serving are serving you chicken shit, and you're eating it thinking it's chocolate mousse, and you're falling for it. And I said, listen, Tomlin, as he he's a solid head coach, single handedly without a shadow of a doubt, the greatest black NFL head coach of all time. But if he if his career were to end right now, is he a Hall of Famer? Hell no, he isn't. I had that opinion last year, the year before that. I had that in the 2020 season. I had it in 2019. I had it in 2018. Hell, I had it after the Jacksonville loss in 2017. Hall of Fame coach, really? He's overrated. How many times? How many times do we have to go through this? How many times do I have to rehash 
the 20, how many times do I have to rehash? The playoff loss in 2011 to Tim Tebow and Rovin. They were the defending AFC champions. The 8-8 eight eight seasons in 2012 and 2013. 2014, they go 11-5. and five. They win the North. And they get bounced in the first round to the Ravens at home. 2015, the one playoff win that they have out of the three that Tomlin has to hang his hat on in the last decade. The three that he has, one of them was against a, was a, was against my self-imploding A.J. McCarron-led Cincinnati Bengals squad in a game that the Steelers had zero business winning. And what happens? They go to Denver next week. They lose to the eventual Super Bowl champs. 2016, they go all the way to they go all the way to the AFC Championship game. And they get curb stomped by oh, Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots. And the two playoff wins they had in that run were against Matt Moore and a Miami Dolphins team playing in 20 degree weather and Alex Smith. A.J. McCarron was in the XFL last year. Alex Smith is retired and out of football. Matt Moore, who the hell knows where he is in 2023. Those are your three playoff wins against A.J. McCarron, Matt Moore, and Alex Smith. Those are your three. And two out of those three coaches that you beat are out of foot or out of Coaching in the NFL. Adam Gase and Marvin Lewis. When can we wake up and get a clue? I'm not saying that Mike Tomlin can't coach. I'm not saying that he's a bum. He's a sc- I'm not saying he's Robert Sala, all right? I'm not saying he's Nathaniel Hackett. I'm not saying that he is... I'm, don't misconstrue what I'm saying. But if you want to talk about and evaluate his career as the head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, you got to bring some objectivity and some honesty to the conversation. And if you want to evaluate his tenure as the head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers post that 2010 Super Bowl season, you got to be honest and see the forest through the trees. We break Aaron Rodgers and Mike McCarthy's balls all the time. They never once since 2010. Aaron Rodgers goes to the NFC Championship game and invents new ways to lose. Mike McCarthy with with the Packer teams, 2014, they pissed on themselves against the Seahawks. 2016, they pissed themselves to the Falcons. Uh, 2019, they got curb stomped. 20, he gets well. They have a bad season. He gets fired. McCarthy goes to Dallas. They can't beat San Francisco. I mean, enough's enough. If we kill McCarthy and we kill Rodgers, two people that beat the Steelers in that Super Bowl, February 2011 to cap off the 2010 season, we got to be as harsh and as critical on the, on, the, on the coach of the team that they beat, who also in, that same, in the same time span hasn't done anything since either. You got to be fair. Matt Moore, Alex Smith, A.J. McCarron. Seriously?
three playoff wins. Did you guys know he has the exact same amount of playoff wins in the last decade as the Pittsburgh Pirates? And repeatedly, he gets praised and gets crowned and kinged time after time after time for these asinine, empty, misleading 9-7, and 9-8 and eight seasons. So that's the Pittsburgh Steelers, the terrible towel, terrible towel, men of steel, the Steeler way, all, all the, the 70 Steelers with Swan and Stallworth and, 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 and Bradshaw and Rocky Blyer and uh, Franco Harris, God rest his soul, and Jack Ham and, and Mel Blunt and Tony Dungy. And and Mean Joe Green with with uh, with with Chuck Knoll, their leader and head coach. I hear. Oh, shut up, Siri. My God, disturbing me in the middle of my rant. Shut the hell up. With Chuck Knoll, all of that, and six Super Bowls. That's what the six Super Bowls. The four in the 70s, the one in 2005, and then another one three years later in 2008. And yet, we are praising a man, praising a coach, because in a 16, now 17-game regular season, he finds a way to get above 500. Really? Is, is that our goal here? When the Ravens have... To a lesser extent, gotten fur gotten further since two thousand. Well, I shouldn't say since two thousand sixteen, but they've won a championship more recently. And the Pittsburgh Steelers have won one. When the Bengals have been to two straight AFC Championship games and have gotten to a Super Bowl, when the Cleveland Browns humiliated them on their home field in a playoff game in twenty twenty, is 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 that what the standard is? When Kansas City's running laps around the rest of the league, going to Super Bowls like it's going out of style, hosting the AFC Championship game and making it essentially the Kansas City Inventational from 2018 through the 2022 season. Is, 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 is that our standard here? Well, he's a great coach because he finds where to get the 97, 98 every single season. Who cares? They don't win. They get the they get the nine and seven and nine and eight for what? For them to miss the playoffs? For them to get the for them to get the seventh seed and get their teeth kicked in by Patrick Mahomes? I mean, wh what the hell are we talking about here? These are the Steelers, not the New York Jets. I mean, be real, people. And I, and I and again, I. I Tory Smith, I respect, Super Bowl, two-time Super Bowl champion, and Adam Jones, the former Orioles center field, who I love, who, again, tried to tell me on Twitter about three years ago that I was off my rocket because I didn't believe Tom's a, a big-time big Hall of Fame head coach. Well let, me well, let me ask Tory and Adam Jones a question. Does a Hall of Fame head coach, when his team's trying to make the playoffs, 
in a wide-open conference in which the defending back-to-back division champion, their their star starting quarterback, is gone for the season with a with a with a screwed up rest. Does a Hall of Fame coach go three and ten against Bill Belichick? Three and ten. Three and ten. You want to talk about coaching doesn't matter? Oh, coaching matters. And had, and had I uh, uh, paid more attention to this game, I probably would have bet the, bet the freaking Patriots to win. Because I need to know, Tomlin versus Belichick. And Belichick's going to come out on top every single freaking time. It doesn't matter if Brady's the quarterback, if Mac Jones is the quarterback, if Bailey Zappi is the quarterback. It does not matter. He repeatedly gets out-coached in circles by Bill Belichick. Repeatedly. That doesn't that doesn't happen to Harbaugh. That doesn't happen as lopsided with Andy Reid. It's it's been a theme with Tom for the last decade plus. Hall of Fame coach? Does a Hall of Fame coach allow his wide receiver to not dive on a on a loose ball. Does a Hall of Fame coach allow the same wide receiver a week later to go through long, drawn out, choreographed touchdown celebrations when they're up to, when they're down three scores in the fourth quarter, losing to a ten loss football team? Does a Hall of Fame coach allow players to do TikTok dances on the mid on their opponent's midfield logo before games? Or allow his wide receiver to be a cancer to tear apart the locker room? Or allow his quarterback to, 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 to be egotistical and further create the divide within his locker room? Or allow Chase Claypool to drag his ass during a two-minute drill? Now, come on. I understand he's a nice guy, and I, I, get, I get it. This isn't against Tomlin the person, but be objective here. How many times does his, does his coach Pittsburgh Steelers team incessantly, repeatedly fall down and lie down and collapse and forget how to play the damn sport against egregiously inferior football teams. If it happens once or twice, that's a coincidence. It's a trend with this team. 2018, they dragged their ass in Oakland against the Raiders. Boswell slips and misses the field goal. Big Ben had to come out of the game, was clear to play and turn it in and put him back on the field because he blamed a mishap with the stadium x-ray machine. I mean, come on. And I told you guys prior to the season, what the hell is everybody getting all hyped about the Pittsburgh Steelers going deep into the playoffs? Based on what exactly? They have an average at best defense with, with, with two all pros on it that saves their asses nine times out of ten. They got Kenny Pickett, 
who we really don't know what he's got yet, who's injury prone to hell. They their running game is not great. They don't target their their wide receivers that they wasted top tier draft picks to bring in here instead of using those draft picks to build up an offensive line and to build a defense outside of T.J. Watt and Cam Hayward. Why do you think I? Come on, Steelers making the playoffs. Give me a break. They brought, they brought back Matt Canada after the train wreck that they had last season, and everybody was all high on the Pittsburgh Steelers. Based on what? Why? Because, because of the name? Because of the brand? I, I, I'm missing something here. I just, I, I, I don't get it. And, everybody, and everybody's, oh my God, oh, the Pittsburgh Guys, I've, 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 I've been screaming the same thing for the last five years. One minute you will take the blinders off and wake up. And this is me coming at it as somebody that hates Steelers. This is me just being an, speaking objectively as a football fan. You know fraudulency in sports when you see it. You know, you know a fraudulent football team, a fraudulent coach or manager in baseball when you see one? And it's like he goes a 17-game season and somehow hams and eggs and, and BSs his way to win nine games, and everybody wants to make him the second the second coming of Vince Lombardi. I mean, what the hell? He lets he, I mean he lets players run a signal locker room. He doesn't do a damn thing to stop it. They're partying in the locker room like they just won Super Bowl after beating. Jake Browning in the Bengals, and they had a first 400 yards yardage offensive game for the first time in three years, yet they only scored 16 points. They sit here partying in the locker room like they just won the damn Super Bowl. They didn't shove Ben Rocklesburg out the door when they should have. Instead, they, they, they catered to him, they placated to him, they pandered him. When he was holding the franchise hostage, and it was apparent to everybody that he was well past his expiration date as a Hall of Fame quarterback. They were insistent and hell bent on drafting splash players at skill positions instead of beefing up their linebacking core, which is one of the things that the Pittsburgh Steelers franchise historically has been built on and prides itself on. And how about drafting an offensive line as well? First overall pick, 2021, after their a sieve offense performed, after their, their offensive line was a sieve and was disgraceful in 2020. And with their first overall pick in 2020, who did they draft? Najee Harris. Who they don't even work him and make him a focal point of the offense. So let me get this straight. You're going to waste high draft picks trying to make the big splash drafting the shiny skill position players instead of using those high picks to beef up the meat and potatoes positions. And when you waste and you reach... 
on the splash draft selections, you turn around with your system and you don't even give them the ball. And Mike Tomlin, who has uh, whose MO has been defense from his days under Gruden in Tampa throughout the 16, 17 years in Pittsburgh. His MO is defense. And his defense, his overrated average at best defense, I might add too, gave up the most passing yards in a first quarter that the New England Patriots have had since Tom Brady left the team. Bailey Zappi and the New England Patriots dropped 21 first half points when in their previous two games, they scored a combined 13 points. 19 points if you want to count the Colts' loss in Germany. They gave up 21 points in one half. That's the most points that the Patriots have scored since their Bills win on October 22nd. That's the They gave the Patriots their first win since October 22nd. They gave the Patriots their first road win all season long. Tomlin thoroughly, ad infinitum, gets outcoached in circles by Bill Belichick. It's like clockwork. Clockwork. And the Steelers, coached by Mike Tomlin, First team that has an above 500 record to lose consecutive games to both teams at least eight games under 500 or more. And I got to hear about Mike Tom being some great Hall of Fame coach, Chuck Knoll of our time. Give me a damn break. Give me a damn break. Bailey Zappi. Through for three touchdown passes. Okay? Three touchdown passes. Their ex-wide receiver in Juju Smith-Schuster got targeted six times, caught four balls for 90 yards. Hunter Henry. Was that Hunter Henry or Rob Gronkowski? He caught two touchdown passes last night. Two touchdown passes. This, the, the, the Patriots as a team heading into this game couldn't score two touchdown passes, couldn't score two touchdowns as a team if you doubled their salary. They couldn't score a point against a Brandon Staley coach defense on Sunday. And Mike Tomlin's team allowed the Patriots once again to come into their house and piss and defecate all over their home field. The more things change, the more things stay the same. And if I got to hear one more damn time about Mike Tomlin being some big-time NFL head coach, 
in terms of at a historical sense, I'm gonna lose it. Because what evi- what how much more evidence do you need to see that this guy is not as cracked up and is not as great of a coach as everybody says he is? I'm not saying Mike Tomlin doesn't deserve another opportunity to coach. I'm not saying he's the worst coach or the worst human being in NFL history. I'm not saying that. But at some point, the Steelers and the people that love to wave the Mike Tomlin pom-poms have got to pull their heads out of their asses Look at the situation objectively for what it is. Take the blinders off and be real. And be honest. The way things are going with the Pittsburgh Steelers have not worked. And if your standard is the standard is the standard. Well, look like the standard is the standard. And the standard for Pittsburgh is that they're just is that they're okay with being just good enough to bullshit their fans and to keep them high on the hopium and to tease them with thinking that they, that they're that they have talent that they have promise knowing good damn well they're no further from Super Bowl they're no closer to a Super Bowl championship than they were the season before and the season before that and the season before that and the season before that the Pittsburgh Steelers have to cut ties with Mike Tomlin for the betterment of the franchise and for the betterment of Mike Tomlin and his legacy in Pittsburgh. He can get fired today and become the head coach of the Jets or the Chargers tomorrow and get them to an AFC championship game if everything broke right. I'm not disputing that. What I am saying is that the marriage between Tomlin and and, and Pittsburgh, it's reached its expiration date. It's time. He's got to go. His voice has gone stale. He has got to go. Antonio Brown becomes a cancer. That's a one-off thing. But if it becomes a thing with the wide receivers that come through that door after him, Juju, Chase Claypool, George Pickens, Deontay Johnson, that falls on coaching. When will the Steelers wake up and get a clue? Only time will tell with that. We will get back to the football in a minute, but let me first touch on some uh, baseball items first. Um, Let's do a Shohei. Let's talk about Shohei Otani first. Where he will end up I don't know. And your guess is as good as mine. It sounds like, and I've, you know, we've all heard word, of course, that it does not look like that he will be a Yankee or a Met. Most likely, one would imagine uh, that he does not, that he wants no parts in the New York market. Um, he, I've heard Toronto and uh, the, you know, that the, uh, the, the, Angels, the Dodgers, Toronto, and I think either the Cubs or um, or the Giants are also still on the table for him to uh, go to. But nobody, he hasn't said anything to anybody. This is all like he said, she said, game of telephone with the insiders and the and the reporters and the beat writers across the baseball world. So, but it, you know, it sounds like that Toronto and the Blue Jays could be a strong. 
uh, candidate to land his services for the 2024 uh, season and beyond. Here's what I would say, and I've and I said this before. If I said that Patrick Mahomes, a guy that's won more than Shohei Otani has, that's played in that's that's more durable than Shohei Otani is, um, who plays a much more of a dangerous sport than Otani does, um, who also uh has played in more big games, not just uh, playoffs, obviously, but regular season. If I said back three years ago that Mahomes wasn't worth five hundred million dollars, what the hell makes me think that I would that I would be in agreement with saying that Otani is worth six hundred million dollars? Okay, nobody is worth five hundred plus million dollars to play professional sports. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your talent is. What sport you play. No, nobody's worth getting paid that much money to play us to play a sport professionally. It's just as all there is to it, um, and especially in his case, because and listen, we all know how talented he is. We all know, we know the the two way player. You know the element of him being a two way player, what it brings, uh, because he's the first in essentially a hundred years plus to do it. But considering that he is not exactly a spring chicken, okay, he's 30 years old or thereabouts if he isn't 30 already. Uh, he's 30 years old, so he's older. I understand 30 isn't necessarily old in baseball, you know, in, in, in baseball years. But it is old if you are a two-way player, which obviously uh, is, is does a lot more stress and a lot more and it, and it requires a lot more or not requires but it produces a lot more wear and tear on your body as a two-way player than it is if he was just the DH or just a starting pitcher so being thir- so being 30 which is a lot different than being 20 within being 25 or 26 in Ala Juan Soto's case who we'll get to in a minute two-way player and then on top of that he's coming off of Tommy John surgery and you're over 30, you're two-way, your your body's always moving, you're always using that, you're always using your arms, even when you're hitting, you're using your arms to, you know, to uh, to, to flex and, ex- and extend. When you're going through your uh, motion, when you're going through your swing motion, when you're running the bases, I mean, two, you, if, you're, if you're playing both sides, you're pitching and you're hitting, your body never gets a break, never gets a break. So you factor that in with the age and then coming off of, and then coming off of Tommy John and then on top of the reason the big reason why I think his market is as expensive as it is is because he pitches and he hits. I don't think people are going to now not saying not not to say that Shohei Otani's a bad hitter under any circumstance because he isn't. But a lot in large part why he is on the market worth the, you know, $600 at least at face value is because he pitches on top of the fact that he hits and he pitches as well as he hits, if not a little bit better on top of the fact that <clears throat> elite starting pitching is harder to find and there and the market for it is a lot more expensive because it's harder to find than it is a good you know, than, than it is a good bat in the lineup. 
Now, granted, you know, uh, having a good bat, especially a good left-handed hitting bat that can hit, you know, in the two that can hit from, you know, two sixty to two eighty something and hit thirty plus home runs over and knocking over a hundred. 110 RBIs. That's great and that's and that's wonderful too. But we but in baseball <clears throat> you wait, you know, certain things come to pass, you know, teams implode, players get put out on the trading market, not to mention prospects that come up through various teams minor league systems. You can find a solid left-handed hitter that can hit in the 260 270 range that can hit 30 plus home runs and driving over 100 RBIs. You know the Yankees found one essentially in Soto for for a perfect example for a perfect example who's not going to cost no nowhere much as near as uh, as as Shohei is right now. Left-handed bat, you know, hits for average, hits for power, you know, athletic, can run the base as well. It has similar archetypes that Shohei does from a hitting perspective, from an offensive perspective. But why the six hundred? Why the six? Why it's so inflated? Six hundred million because he hit because he pitches, and teams need and te- and contending teams, teams on the come up or teams that are that have plans on being in the World Series come the following October. They want and they crave and they desire elite starting pitching. Which in which in this day and age of Major League Baseball, it's hard to come by. There's only so many great starting pitchers, and there's only but so many of them to go around. That's experience, and that's proven, and that can shine at the Major League level instantaneously. But so that's why I so I I get and I understand why he's worth six hundred million. But because of the reasons that I gave you. You, you, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay for it, especially when you're only going to, yeah, it's 600 million, at least for one season, you know, for, for four at bats a game. I mean, and I, and I understand no salary cap, but I mean, theoretically there is a salary cap because unless you are the New York Yankees and the Yankees, not even a point of finances, it's just, it's just the point of having no place to put them on the roster. I E C C Giancarlo Stanton still being on the team. They, you know, the only, sir, only the, the, there's no place to put them. And on you, and you have to build a roster outside of the one great player. And if there's any team that we've seen this as an example, it's been the LA Angels the last handful of seasons, whether it's been just with Mike Trout or just with Otani or in the rare cases where they're both on the field and in the lineup at the same time, the one or the two great transcendent players don't make you an automatic World Series contender. Hell, don't make you an automatic playoff contender. Basketball, the one of the two great players, it's different. There's only five guys on there's only five guys on the court. And in the way that that game, obviously, the way it is, the one or the two great players can dominate the game and can take over a game. You can't take over a baseball game outside of it's like an inning or whatever, like in the you, you, you can't you can't do it. There's too many individ, indiv, There's too many players on the field at one time if you're not hitting, and it's too much of an individual. There's a lot of indu, individualistic roles on a baseball field, you know, comparatively than there is, say, you know, basketball for a perfect example. And 
history tells us that forking up tons of money to pay the one or the two uh, great players to be on your roster isn't an automatic ticket to winning a World Series. At the end of the day, the teams that are that are in the market for Shohei Otani are teams, unless you know, outside of the, really the Giants and the Cubs, they're teams that have World Series aspirations that have played in the postseason or two within within the last season two or three. The Blue Jays, you know, you know the Blue Jays and the infancy of the Otani rumors with the, you know, with the with the Yankees. Obviously, you heard rumblings of the Red Sox who who were in the playoffs two years ago and won the uh, and won the World Series five years ago. So I mean, and the teams that can afford Otani are the teams. I mean, I, I mean, I understand that, that there's that there's outside that there's outliers. The Orioles being one of them and teams like that. But for the, for the for the youth for the chunk of what I'm saying, the teams that are in the market form are teams that are also contending the Winter World Series championship. By 2023, or excuse me, by 2024, 2025, and and the years after that. And bringing him in, especially when you're not going to have his most valuable asset, and that is his pitching for a whole season, Knowing on top of the fact that him being in free agency is kind of holding the the free agency period with a lot of other players hostage, ah, eh, I I wouldn't do it. Great talent, any team would, and he'd be an improvement, and he would be a plus X's and O's baseball plus. He he'd be the he'd be he'd make the Yank he'd make every team from from the Rangers. From the from the Rangers to the Oakland A's, he'd make any team better instantaneously. But does he fit the current team's roster makeup, and is it economically feasible long term? And I don't care about and I don't care about growing the brand and him being no no no. Because at the end of the day, you're in it to win championships. At the end of the day, and if you are a team that obviously that can afford to be in the market for Shohei Otani. You're one of those teams where, where you ain't BSing around and you're trying to win championships. And at the end of the day, that's when it, that's what it comes down to. I understand he brings in obviously the Asian and in specific the Japanese community and everything. Else. To hell with all that. I'm interested. Can if I'm bringing him in here, can I envision him? helping my team win a World Series championship. And he has the talent to do that for all 30 teams. But not all 30 teams are, are World Series contenders heading into 2024. And even a World Series contenders that are that the, the, the small list of them that are, that are out there heading into the 2024 season, A, not all of them can afford them, and B, they, B, it wouldn't be economically feasible for the World Series contending aspirations for him to be on the roster because they have holes because various teams have various holes otherwhere that wouldn't be filled up simply by just plopping Shohei Otani on the roster. And even in a non-salary cap sport, the owners, even billionaires, don't have infinite amounts of, 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 of spending ability. New York Yankees can't afford everybody, which hence, which is why you know it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that Otani isn't going to be a New York Yankee. Which is why they, which is why they went out of the way to bring Juan Soto in. 
They're trying to they with the Yankees, and they're kind of taking like a Moneyball esque approach, an expensive Moneyball esque approach in it. They got Otani's hitting qualities in getting and bringing in Soto, and they're trying to get Otani's pitching qualities and trying to get Yamamoto, the star pitcher from Japan, over here. But you but you get what but you get what I'm drifting at. And speaking of which, with uh, with uh, with uh, with uh, Juan Soto, listen. <laughs> the goal for the New York Yankees, like like what I ranted about with Pittsburgh, is to win championships. Does Juan Soto make the Yankees roster better? Yeah, he does. He's an improvement. But you know, he's a left-handed bat, which they which they desperately need. He's a guy that can hit for average, you know, which they desperately need. He's a guy that can take advantage of the short porch and right, something that the Yankees with that short porch that goes back to even the original Yankee Stadium is something that they that they have ignored and has been devoid of for the longest time. So it's a plus in that aspect. But if you're the New York Yankees, am I crowning you champions of the American League, held champions of the AL East because you Traded for Juan Soto, who may not even be there after next season. I'm not. I'm not. Because, let me ask, and I understand that they're working on bringing Yamamoto in here. But even then, Yamamoto and Garrett Cole, that's two guys. What about the rest of your rotation? Severino was atrocious. You gave Nestor, you gave, uh, you gave, call it, you, Nestor, Cor, Nestor Cortez, okay, be that as it may. What about Carlos Rodon, who you got from the Giants and you paid him a fortune, who was injured the majority of the, of the first half of last season. When he got on the mound, he was completely atrocious. Severino, a head case, he had to let him go. And the Yankees, who are in a very, who have a, who are on a very short list of laundry list of teams that can say that we have an ace, even then, having the one ace means deadly. If the other four guys among your rotation are glorified batting practice machines, so if they get Yamamoto, that's great. Two two fifths of your rotation solid. What about the other three? What about your bullpen? Which was vastly overrated heading into the season, and who, who, which, whom also got worked down to the down to a nub by Boone and his glorious bullpen mismanagement, and 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 were worn out and just disgraceful, and was agree and were egregiously bad through the large chunk of the summer last season. What about your bullpen? Can your team finally learn how to run the bases properly for a change? How about that? Can can Boone, you know, can and a new slash? I don't think he can. Can Boone somehow get this team if they do make it make the playoffs again? Can he get this team to get to get through Houston once and for all? Can Boone learn how to manage a bullpen? Can Boone hold players accountable for getting away with, with, with insubordination and getting away with piss poor baseball fundamentals within the locker room? 
That's the kicker. And also the big kicker, and even though, and granted, it's only December 8th, it's early in the offseason. You still got the rest of this month, all of January, all of, Febu- all of uh, February, and even once you get into February, you still got a whole ass month and some change until you get the opening day. Come, I think it's March 30th, if I'm not mistaken. Even with all that, can the Yankees stay healthy? Because they can bring in and trade for and sign all talent in the world if, again, the roster that's built with a bunch of damn football players, half of them are on, you know, the IL come, come Memorial Day. And the Yankees got to find a way to scratch and claw, you know, through a month and a half, two, three months out of their schedule with a bunch of substandard backups. I mean, you're going to be looking right down the barrel at another at another substandard, above-average Yankee season where they have just over 85-ish wins or so, and they're going to be scratching and sniffing for, for a sixth seed and, and a third and final wildcard spot in the American League playoff picture. They're still stuck with Stanton. Stanton, oh, well, I'm going to be a better player, and... I'm going to prove, you know, Cashman wrong and this, that, and prove the haters and prove the, no, you're not. Stan is what he is. He's an automatic out who's injury prone to shit, who strikes out, who strikes out a ton. Let's be real. Be real. Trent Grisham. Okay, fine. He's going to be a good defensive replacement late in games. What happens when the Yankees find themselves in offensive funk when they can't hit worth a damn? And they need a big hit out of Trent Grisham in the worst way where they have to, or Boone has to play him in the field because it's a tight game where they can ill afford to surrender any runs and he gets on and he gets up at the plate with runners on, with runners on, uh, on, uh, first and third with less than two out and he's got to, and, he, and the runner on first is, is the, Crucial tying run in the seventh or the eighth inning of a baseball game, and he strikes out or pops up along the first base side. Then what? Yankees made a step in the right direction. Getting Soto is definitely an improvement, but let's not act like that Soto being a New York Yankee automatically makes him a World Series champion because it doesn't. There's still a lot of work. There's still a lot of work yet to be done. And again, this idiot. Under my umbrella, umbrella, hey, 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 hey. Is still in charge. Is still the one calling the shots, or is the puppet of the front office that's that's calling the shots? So Soto makes gets them from 82 wins to 92. Okay, uh, great. 92 wins is going to be good enough to win the AL East this year. I mean, the only thing that this does is make them better than the Red Sox, which ain't saying much. And uh, and if Otani goes to Toronto, what are you going to say then? Who has a who in Toronto whose rotation? I said they don't is that they don't have one specific ace that's better than Garrett Cole, but collectively as a rotation, you take the Blue Jays' rotation, 
nine times than you would, at least as it stands right now, or at least at the end of last season, than you would the Yankee rotation. I understand Cole is better than any guy that the Blue Jays have. I'm talking about a collective unit. The Blue Jays unit is still better as of the end of last year. And they get and they get Otani to add his bat. I mean, so I mean, does it? Do you one through nine? Do you think that you have a better lineup than Toronto? What about what about my Orioles? Better team, better lineup than them. I understand the Orioles with, with the starting pitching woes. I'm I'm talking about lineup and the ability to hit. And the Orioles might have Jackson Holiday as their starting, uh, sh- as their starting shortstop come opening day. With Gunnar Henderson coming back for a second full season, Adley, Adley, Westberg, uh, first base would be a battle a battle for the starting job between Mountie and O'Hearn. One can one can imagine. And in the outfield with Colton Kowser and, and, and Hayes and Mullins and Santander, I mean, come on. Can they be better than the teams in the Central? Oh, well, yeah. And can the Yankees and will the Yankees most likely make the playoffs again? Probably. But again, like I said with Pittsburgh, it applies to the Yankees. Is the goal to be winning championships or is the goal being just good enough just so you can just be in the dance just to say that you're in the dance? That's what, that's the question that's got to get asked. That's what you got to think about. If the question is winning championships, the Yankees still got a little, a little bit of an uphill battle to climb on top of some self-inflicted landmines that they got to avoid to to get to the World Series, which is which is what the Yankee fans want. Because honestly, if you're a Yankee fan getting all pumped up about Soto, you know, saying, "Oh my God, we're back, World Series contenders," you guys, you guys need to need to throw some cold water on your face. Because you'll be saying we're back World Series champions in December. And come June, you'll want Cashman, Hal, Boone, and three-fourths of the roster thrown out on their ass because they go because they go 0 for 20 with runs in scoring position and they're losing you know and they're losing series to the likes of the damn Kansas City Royals. So just it's a start. It's a positive start. It's a win. But pump the brakes before we start crowning the Yankees the kings of the American League again and worlds and 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 putting them on the number one tier of World Series contending teams in in 2024. Because they still got a little bit more work to do before they get there. And even if they put together the greatest Yankee roster, this side of the '98 Yankees. Aaron Boone is no Joe Torre. Or no K- he's no Casey Stengel. He's no Joe McCarthy. He's no Billy Martin. Okay? He's Aaron Boone. Under my umbrella, umbrella. Hey, 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 hey. Let's call it like we see it. Call it like we see it.
Now, in terms of the other two things, first off, let, let me only the Orioles can 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 make me rage and can make me yell and scream in December. Somebody has to explain to me what the hell, what the hell is the logic in bringing in? I understand that we'll have no Felix Batista for the 2024 season, but can somebody explain to me what the hell the logic is in bringing in Craig Kimbrell for $12 million? Craig Kimbrell, the same Craig Kimbrell, okay, who, and I said it, on this show, I said it on the Wednesday night show. I said thirteen million, not twelve. There's two people responsible for subjecting us to the Arizona Diamondbacks in the World Series. That's Doggy and that's Craig Kimbrell. Craig Kimbrell single handedly gifted the Arizona Diamondbacks the National League pennant. He gave up the big he gave up the big hit to Alex Thomas on a 3-2 count uh in the bottom of the in the bottom of the eighth inning in game four. He gave up the big hit to Cattell Marte, the the walk-off uh, the walk-off single the night prior. Okay? I saw him vomit all over himself and gave up the and gave up a clutch Double down a left field line back in late July in Philly to Colton Kowser that uh, that 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 took the lead and gave the Orioles the lead in the ninth inning when the Orioles played Philadelphia. This is a guy who's who is well past his expiration date in terms of being an elite closer in 2023 Major League Baseball. He had an ERA of 3.26 last year. And I say it all the time. And as a reliever, and, and, and most importantly as a closer, if your ERA is over 3, that's the equivalent for a starting pitcher's ERA being over five and being over 4.5. Okay? He has, a, he has not had an ERA. Get this. He had an ERA of 3.26. His ERA was 3.75 with the Dodgers in 2022. He was a sieve with the with with the Chicago White Sox in 2021. He was garbage with the Chicago Cubs in 2019 and 2020. He wasn't great. In the in the Red Sox World Series championship season in 2018, wasn't great for him in 2016 either. Had an ERA of 3.4. Let's be let's call it the way we see it. Craig Kimbrell is not the Craig Kimbrell of old. He is a washed All Star that is a automatic heart attack every single time he takes he takes the mound in the ninth inning. And especially in the ninth inning of a big game. And the Orioles gave him $13 million. I mean, you would think they would go out there and spend the $13 million to see what the hell they can do to get possibly Blake Snell in here and get some damn starting pitching. Some experienced, 
postseason tested starting pitching, which is why we lost the Rangers. We didn't lose the Rangers series because 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 you know the bullpen couldn't keep a lead or couldn't keep a tight game in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning. We lost the Rangers series because he had no damn starting pitching, which wore our bullpen thin. As a result, we got swept. Good morning, good afternoon, good night. Orioles, 101 season, down the toilet, down the drain. That's why we lost. Because on top of the fact we couldn't hit, we had no starting pitching. None. Bradish wasn't great in game one. Grace Rodriguez imploded in game two. And we sent out Dean Kramer as a Hail Mary attempt, only for it, only for it to blow up, blow up in our face. That's why we lost. Not the bullpen. And you wasted $13 million on a closer that's going to have his moments, that's going to, you know, hey, you know, you know, rack up 20-plus-ish 20 saves. But you put him on the mound of a game that the Orioles have to have in the summertime, in September, and Lord willing, October, and don't be surprised if I'm on here nine, ten months from now, screaming and yelling, cuss my head off, reciting this this exact segment of the show, saying, why in the hell is Craig Kimbrough on my baseball team? Makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. None. None. I don't know why Mookie bets and why this is becoming a thing with, uh, I understand Harper has had the Tommy John, uh, which I can understand, but why the Dodgers going to, you know, make, you know, go out of their way and make it their business to, um, to put Mookie Betts at second base. I don't understand. And this not, not that this is like that they're breaking any rules with rules or anything, or, you know, uh, app, Upsetting the apple cart. It's just one, just one of it's as my phone falls halfway across the room. Hold on, give me a second. It's not that you know any nobody's breaking any rules or anything. It's just one of those things that I just I don't understand. You know they're moving him to second base. I mean I can, I mean see if I can crack the code of what of what it means. Uh, moving him to second base. I just. I, I don't know. I don't. I understand that he's played that he played second base, you know, uh, a little bit throughout the first few days of the season. Uh, Robert saying he wants to make him his everyday second baseman, which I just, I, I just, I, I don't, I, I don't understand why he's looked at not looked at as a utility player. Mookie is a superstar player. I think it's important for him to thrive. Have some clarity. I can see him playing the rest of his career at second base. I mean, but but why though? I mean. He enjoys made it clear that he enjoys playing in the infield than in the outfield. Uh, never lost his plays. I guess so. I guess his original position, and he came up as an infielder. All right, fine. Just I mean, I don't know. If it was me, I'd stick with playing the outfield. But what the hell do I know? All right. So it looks like that uh, that he wanted to play the infield. He enjoys playing the infield than the outfield, and he came up. Through the minor leagues with the Red Sox as an infielder. Okay, fine. Whatever. Who cares? Anyway, but that's where you stand as far as baseball is concerned. Kimball's an Oriole. Uh, Juan Soto's a Yankee. Oh, Alex Verdugo. I forgot to mention him. He's a Yankee, too. 
rare trade between the uh, Yankees and the Red Sox as well. Uh, so he obviously also is an improvement for the outfield as well. So, I mean, they got Verdugo and they got, and they got Soto in here. Improvements. But, okay, you made your lineup better. Great. And we're going to do a bunch of rotation. We're going to do a bunch of bullpen. And can Aaron Boone magically become a good manager overnight? To me, I think the answer is no. I, I think what this offseason is doing is basically bringing the Yankees back to where they were, which was a perennial playoff team that is in a, that, that, that can't beat Team X, whether it's the Astros or in certain select years the Red Sox get to a World Series. So I don't know. And I tell you this, and even if the and even if the Yankees go forward and, you know, have a off season of the age and become off season champions, A, will it translate onto the field? I don't know. Because we've seen this with the Yankees at Infinite a whole bunch of times. They go out there and they become champ and it's not just them. We've seen we've seen it with the uh we've seen it with the San Diego Padres in two separate occasions now. Where these teams go out there and they become and they get crowned champions of the offseason because they spent the most dough and then they throw the team out there on the field and the team you know can't figure out a way to win ball games and they're a average at best team throughout the one sixty two six months of a baseball season and the World Series comes and goes and they are nowhere and they're as close to hoisting the commissioner's trophy as the worst team in the league so. So it, 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 if it translates onto a decent on-field product, you know that's where that's where the proof will be, and that's where I will be, be taken aback, and where I will be like, oh, okay, now you're showing me some. And if Aaron Boone shows any improvements, um, which and if there's one thing, even if the Yankees again put together the perfect roster and have the perfect offseason, they're still their biggest roadblock is their manager. He is he he is that and if, and and also if they put together a perfect roster, there's no more excuses for Boone, because he is very 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 blessed and fortunate to still have a job heading into the 2024 season when he should have been thrown out on his ass after this season after two th- after. 2022 when they were uncompetitive against the Astros and the ALCS should have been fired after they lost on the road to the Red Sox in 2021 should have been fired after the debacle in 2020 against the Tampa Bay Rays I mean, I mean if there's any guy that's been well past well past his expiration like that's blessed to still be employed it's Aaron Boone and if Cashman actually goes out there and gets the Yankees to be where they can be the quote-unquote champions of the offseason and they flame out again either have another piss-poor regular season where the team's a mess, there's no synergy, there's no chemistry, they can't hit, they can't run the bases, and or they have a horrendous October, Aaron Boone needs to be thrown, thrown out on the chopping block ASAP. But anyway, that's where you stand as far as the baseball offseason and the free agency hot stove period through the second through the, the first full week of the month of December. We switched years back to the National Football League week 14. Surprisingly a lot of intriguing games to be quite honest with you and that's without having to count uh, Eagles and Cowboys on Sunday night. Who would have thought that this game would be a game of playoff intrigue between my Cincinnati Bengals and the Indianapolis Colts 
The Colts, like we discussed earlier this week, did a sensational job. Their special teams helped uh, win that game for them in a big way. And Garner Minshew can be a little bit erratic, a little bit up and down. You know, every now and again, occasionally he makes a habit of throwing to the wrong damn team. But you know what? At the end of the day, he's a gamer. And if you give him an opportunity to strike back and claw back in the final quarter in the final few minutes of the final quarter of a football game and tie a game and potentially win a game that that he and his team have no business winning he's going to find a way to get it done uh so i mean so and if you're the Cincinnati Bengals, you got to be aware of that. You got to take that into account, and you got to say, "Listen, if we get out to an early lead on these guys, we got to put them. We got to immediately put them away. We can't give them any hope. We can't give them any any uh, underlying confidence that they, you know, believing that they think that they can come back on us in the fourth quarter or some point in the second half and uh and steal and steal a win out of the jaws from out of the jaws of defeat. They will have no Jonathan Taylor for this game uh for Indianapolis. They're seven and five. This is a well coached football team, a uh a, an underrated in terms of the level in terms of the high level of coaching that Shane Steichen has done with this Indianapolis Colts team throughout this entire season. The Colts are seven and five right now. Uh, you take a look at the Colts schedule from here on out. They have games. They have games against Cincinnati and Pittsburgh back to back, and then they end in the season with the Falcons, the Raiders, and the Texans. It is not a easy schedule to close out the season for the Indianapolis Colts, but if they can get the eight wins and get the eight and five with two with you figure ten wins, even though they do not have the tiebreaker over teams of you know for the you know Jacksonville and uh, who may end up win the division won't make any difference anyway but the one wildcard team they don't have a tiebreaker with is uh is cleveland and cleveland right now where it stands right now could be a, a fringe playoff team so if you're indianapolis you win sunday you're already sitting at eight wins with the steelers and the falcons your next two and you have four tries to get two wins you know, you go two and two. You finish the season with you finish the season with a ten and seven record. If you win on Sunday afternoon, but Minshew, he can play. He is one of the league's, you know, best uh, backup quarterbacks that the sport has to offer. They're coached well on the offensive and defensive side of the ball, and the Bengals got to be aware of that, man. Heading into this game on Sunday afternoon, they did a great job Monday night. We discussed. Balanced offensive attack. They threw the football thirty-seven times. They ran the foot. They ran the football. Uh, they ran the football thirty-one times as a football team for uh, over one hundred and fifty yards on the ground. They got to have that balanced offensive approach for not just against you know games that no one in America thinks they have a chance in hell to win against the Jacksonville Jaguars on the road on Monday Night Football, but also you know throughout the rest of the season with Browning at the helm. We've seen what he has. We know the we know the, uh, the the talent, the just the sheer raw talent that he that he has. The undrafted quarterback out of University of Washington. So we see what he has. He can play the game. He can play the sport. He can be a quarterback in the National Football League. So don't you know treat him with kid gloves and give him a pa- a tissue paper soft, feeble, uh, easy you know one dimensional game plan. Okay. Now now is he going to go thirty two or thirty seven again? Probably not. But what you would want and what you would expect if you were me. 
a Cincinnati Bengals fan or if you were Zach Taylor or anybody attached with the Cincinnati Bengals heading into this game on Sunday afternoon, is that you would anticipate them having a a carbon copy in terms of what they want to do offensively. Let's get Joe, let's get Joe Mixon and Chase Brown, your 1A and 1B with your with your running backs as getting them involved in the game early and often, making making the running game a focal point of attack offensively, having the run set up the pass, not the other way around. Work and once you do that and you run the football, you know, and you let the game play itself out, and you and, you, and if it and if Lord willing it ends up working out that way, your running game is solid. It sets up the play action. You put Browning under center. You work the play action. You work the play action rollout. You get the Colts, and you can see, you know, and and bait the Colts into dropping the one safety, you know, back deep and having the box, you know, stacked to play up against the run. And what happens when you do that, you put the one safety high and Jamar Chase is on the field, mono and mono coverage, it's it's going to be a bad day for your defense. And that's exactly what happened in the third and short on Monday night. One safety, one safety high that was guarded a little that was guarded too far to his left, the quarterback's right side of right side of the field. Jamar Chase mono and mono. No safety help over the top. Third and one, they're expecting they're expecting the run. You air it out, you give the ball to Jamar Chase, 76 yards to the crib, and you score touchdowns. That's what the Cincinnati Bengals have got to do in this game on Sunday. That's what they got to do the rest of the season, regardless if they make the playoffs or not. That's what they got to do when JB comes back. We've discussed it all week long. But you do that running the football effectively with Joe Mixon and Chase Brown, and if it doesn't work immediately, don't abandon it and give up on it. Keep at especially if the game's tight. If the defense keeps you in the game, it's a tightly contested football game heading into halftime and coming and coming out of the halftime locker room in the third quarter. Stick with the run. Stick with it. Because at the bare minimum, what you're going to do is just you're going to tie the defense out and you're going to wear them out and put the defense in a position where they got to be on where they where they got to be on the field for a long time, on their heels, tired, exhausted. And when it does come time for you, need Jake Brown to go out there and cook and go 75 yards and have him throw the ball 90 percent of the drive, he's going to be able to do so because the defense will be, will be worn thin and 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 it's, and it's worn tired because of the fact that the off because of the fact they that they lost the battle hypothetically. You would hope the battle in the trenches, offensive line, defensive line, and Chase Brown. And Joe Mixon just pounding the run game to death. So that's what you got to do if you're Zach Taylor and you're Bryant Callahan heading into this game on Sunday on Sunday afternoon. And then defensively, if you're Cincinnati, you know you you didn't force turn you lost a turnover battle and you won. You know that and that's not a the way that you want to win football games. It's you know it's a one off. The Bengals lose so many games when they win the turnover battle. It's only apropos that they win a game and a game that they lose a turnover battle, but. Especially against marginal to subpar football teams, at least in terms of roster talent, you want to be able to force turnovers and get the ball uh, for your backup quarterback with a short with a short field. And if the Bengals were are, if the Bengals could force the turnovers that they that they did that they forced in the Steeler game and that they forced during various points of during various points in various games of the season, and then they have an offensive game. You know that not maybe not as great. You know, scoring thirty four points again, 
with Browning throwing for a touchdown pass and over 300 yards and only five incompletions and run the football as a team for 156 yards. But if you score about, you know, 27, if you score in the high, if you score in the, in the mid to high 20s, you win a turnover battle and the Bengals defense doesn't get uh, picked apart by Gardner Minshew and allows the big plays and is able to stop the run like they were able to do with Travis Etienne on Monday night earlier this week, they should be in decent shape. But this is a... This is a tough, tough football game to call. Tough fo- football game to predict. I mean, the Colts—they've won. Uh, they've won a bevy of grind them out of uh, football games throughout the season. Uh, what you know, the Ravens game and the Titans game, of course, one A, one B. That quickly comes to mind. But this is a game where the uh, where if any team has a hiccup, you know, a, a, a crucial turnover. Uh, inside the red zone or deep in enemy territory, man, it could be the di- it could be the difference maker of the game. But I anticipate this to be a nip and tuck tight football game. Maybe not at you know not as high scoring as their respective teams' games were. You know, Colts with Tennessee and Cincinnati with Jacksonville. But I anticipate you know this being you know a, a twenty a twenty to seventeen twenty four twenty one type of finish. Uh, in the uh, in the Queen City coming up on Sunday afternoon. Game number two between the Rams and the Ravens holds significance. First off, the Ravens they got to take advantage of the fact that the uh, that you, that the Jacksonville Jaguars, the team who the Ravens play in about a week, I believe. Yeah, they play them next week. As a matter of fact, on Sunday Night Football. A uh, team that they play a week from Sunday night, uh, a game that they might lose, but it may, but that game may not matter in terms of potential tiebreaker for the one or the two seed or potentially the three, if the Ravens take care of business uh, on uh, Sunday afternoon against the L.A. Rams. The Ra- the Ravens right now, if you look at where they stand in the uh, playoff picture for the one seed, the Ravens currently have a 9 and 3 record. They have one less loss than the Jacksonville Jaguars at 8 and 4, who obviously did the bank did the Ravens a huge solid losing to the Bengals on Monday night football earlier this week. So the Ravens who are currently 9 and 3, they have won two straight game they have won two games in a row. They are undefeated against the NFC this season. And a four with a four and two record at home. They have not lost a home game since the overtime, since uh, not the overtime, but they have not lost a home game since November the twelfth when they lost to Cleveland. They've won two games in a row since then. They've won one, two, three, four, five, six out of their last seven games heading into the Ram game. They beat. Uh, they lost to the Rams when the Rams came to Baltimore in their uh, Super Bowl season, the Rams Super Bowl season that is in 2021. Uh, but this obviously is not the same Ram team in terms of level of talent. The Ravens are a better team, much more talented team uh, now than the uh, than they were then in comparison to the Rams. And if you're the Ravens, the game plan is for this game. Don't take your opponent lightly. You know, the, deliver the right hook. Deliver the opening punch and the uh, and and make the Rams have an uphill battle for the majority of the for the majority of the fo- of the of the football game. And then the Ravens are a much better team uh, than the Rams are. So the this game shouldn't even 
I mean, it, it should be Ravens win. Ravens win this game, thirty-one seventeen. Good morning, good afternoon, good night. Thank you for playing our game. Thanks for making the uh, flight, you know, cross country to uh, you know to the bank and getting your ass kicked. Because the Ravens are a better team than the Rams, they have a much better. They have a much better defense. They have uh, more playmakers on defense than the L.A. Rams do, and on t- and on top of the fact, they have a much better, uh, much better, more more well-rounded offense than the L.A. Rams do. Much better running game. Lamar Jackson's improved this season. Matthew Stafford's been bang. He's still playing solid football that can get the Rams to the playoffs, but. He's been banged up, and the the I think the key point and where this game will be won and lost is in the trenches with the Rams' offensive line, which obviously we've known this season has struggled has struggled throughout various points in the season and has cost them various amounts of football games throughout this 2022 season for them. But I think that the uh, but I think in all on in all objectivity and all honesty that that will be an area where the Ravens will expose their weakness with their elite pass rush. Roquan Smith and the crew will take advantage of it. It's a tough place to play, especially from a deficit, and it's going to get loud. It's going to get. I mean, nothing that they used to playing the weak ass, you know, SoFi Stadium over there in Englewood. I mean, this is uh, this 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 is this is jumping into the big boy pool. And now they came here two years ago when they won. Super Bowl and won it, but this is a much better Ravens team with a lot, with a little bit more to extra to play for now in 2023 than they did back in 2021. So, and the Rams who are six and sixteen. They've been mid average literally this season, but they still haven't even they even they can afford to lose this game to the Ravens and still have their playoff destiny ahead of them. Uh, be six and seven, run the table, and make the playoffs as a ten and seven football team as a sixth or a seventh seed in the NFC playoff picture. But uh, I think the Ravens are going to have this game and dominate this game right from the point of attack of dominating inside, dominating within the trenches. The offensive line play of the Ravens, I like their chances better up against the Rams defensive line than I do for the Rams offensive line to go up against the Ravens defensive line. Uh, Mike McDonald has coached his ass off this season. Top five, top ten defense in the National Football League. Lamar Jackson should have a uh, should have a bounce back day. Uh, he struggled in the Brown game. He was not great against the Chargers on that Sunday night two weeks ago. Um, Zay Flowers is coming into his own, and also you'll have the Odell Beckham Jr. love fest. Uh, where we'll rehash Odell's, you know, three months with the L.A. Rams, and we'll go gaga uh, over that for the, you know, for the next three, you know, for the next, uh, you know, forthcoming three hours on Sunday afternoon. But uh, I think the Ravens, they're a better football team, top to bottom. Uh, you know, head coach, you can flip a coin. Who would you rather have, McVay or Harbaugh? But I think the Ravens get the job done in this game be very very shocked and would be very on brand also for the Ravens if they uh if they for whatever the reason took the uh took the uh, Rams lightly and allowed Matthew Stafford and uh Cooper Cup and uh well not that well Cooper Cup to a lesser extent but more importantly Puka Nakua allows them to go nuts in the game but uh, we shall see. Should be intriguing one on a Sunday afternoon at M&T Bank Stadium. Game number three: the Jaguars and the Browns. Jaguars they're coming off of their they're coming off of their loss to Cincinnati on Monday night. This is a key bounce back game for them going up against Cleveland, who's dealt with who who has dealt with injuries all season long. Uh, Trevor Lawrence, the news 
with him. He's listed, uh, Trevor Lawrence listed as questionable. So we shall see if he gets a, if he gets a chance, if he gets an opportunity. Uh, I can check and see right now whether or not he's practicing. Whether or not he's practicing today. Uh, just give me a couple. Just give me a couple seconds. But this is a game that both teams need for separate reasons. Uh, Trevor Lawrence. It looks he says he looks like he's a game time decision. And uh, he's a game-time decision, but he is practicing today. Okay, so there you go with that. Um, but the Chargers need this game to keep off and to uh, fight off the Texans who are going to be on their tail and have been on their tail over the last essentially month or so for first place in the AFC South. And they have to have this game and still keep that edge over the Texans for first place in the South. They also need this game to... Even when it's going to be difficult with four losses, but to uh, stay in the conversation of the one seed at bare minimum, getting the two of the three, and avoiding uh, getting the uh, four, and avoiding getting the uh, the four seed and having to go up against say you know uh, Houston for uh, you know as their first playoff matchup on Wild Card Weekend, which will not be an easy game for the Jaguars. I know it's a well, it's about a month in advance until then, but. You still would like to avoid playing, especially a tough, gritty football team and a hungry young team such as them in the opening round of the playoffs uh, if you if you can. And they need, and in order for them to do that, they need to stack up as many wins as they possibly can. Meanwhile, Cleveland, you know, they've hit a little bit of an abutment, but it's in large part because of injuries for them this season. Uh, they're seven. They are seven and five. They lost to the Rams last Sunday. Uh, they have injury. You know, have Kareem Hunt and Amari Cooper and DTR listed on the injury report. It sounds like that they might that if DTR plays that they'll go to him uh, for the starting QB role coming up on Sunday afternoon. But if you're Cleveland, you need this game in the worst way imaginable because if you lose this game, you have to worry about Cincinnati. Who Cincinnati and uh, and Indianapolis for both reasons. Uh, Indian, you hold the tiebreaker over Indianapolis. But if Indianapolis were to win and you guys were to lose, Indy would have the eighth win of the season, and Cleveland would have their sixth loss. Indy would be eight and five. Cleveland would be seven and six. And in that scenario, the tiebreaker in with the head-to-head tiebreaker means nothing if you have the if you have a uh, inferior record to Indianapolis. Indy would would overtake Cleveland as the fifth seed. Cleveland would fall down to. Cleveland would fall down to the sixth, and also with any tiebreakers in play against uh, with any tiebreakers in play against Houston, keep that on the table, uh, keep that on the table as well to keep an eye, to keep an eye on as well, and also Cincinnati. With Cleveland having to play Cincinnati last weekend of the regular season in Week 18, if Cleveland lost, they'd be seven and six, and Cincinnati, if they were to win, they would be seven and six. Now, granted, Cleveland does have the head-to-head tiebreaker over Cincinnati because they beat them in Week One, but it would be, but it would cut down on the on the uh, on the uh, the the um. The the, the 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 gap margin between the two teams in terms of playoff seating it cut it in half if Cincinnati won on Sunday and Cleveland uh handed got handed yet another uh, yet another loss uh this season but should be an intri- a tough football game to call because injuries play such a key factor in how both of these ga- how the games for both of the how the game for both of these teams will play itself out. 
Um, so I anticipate, at least on paper, to be a uh, a low-scoring affair defensively. Jacksonville's defense has got to do a better job than what it was on Monday Night Football. Uh, the Bengals were solid on third down. Jake Browning made essentially damn near every throw uh, that the that the Jaguars challenged him to make, and they did a terrible job at stopping the run. In Cleveland, if anything, they're going to rely on the run game to do a lot of the heavy lifting for either DTR or and I, you know, or Joe Flacco, if the opportunity presents itself for him to get yet another start for the Cleveland Browns, and they played solid Cleveland. That is, you know, to to begin against the Rams last week until things got away from them with uh, Stafford and Puka Nakua. They have home field advantage, cold weather team hosting a warm weather city. I don't know. We shall see. Should be an intriguing game up on the uh, city by Lake Erie. Game number four: the Bills and the Chiefs. Bills need this season. If there was ever a week where the Bills at six and six not only has their playoff hopes and them making the playoffs, the division's gone. But if there's ever a time and moment in the season where the where uh, making the playoffs and by virtue of their Super Bowl aspirations are still relatively on the table, it's this week with Ch- with the with uh, the Jaguars getting their hand, getting handed their fourth loss. The injury issues with Lawrence, the Steelers floundering. I mean, it's right there for the for the Buffalo Bills to uh, you know for them to make the playoffs and somehow so they get to a Super Bowl as a wild card team. They're sick. They're currently sitting at six and six. The Bills are going into Kansas City against a Chiefs team that is certainly the one of the most uh, vulnerable and beatable Chiefs teams we've seen in the Patrick Mahomes, Andy Reid era. The Eagles play their asses off, but uh, had their opportunities to beat Philadelphia two weeks ago on Thanksgiving Day weekend, losing by a field goal, and uh, they had also had the thirty-two to six victory over the Jets. Here's an opportunity, you know, and they have, and it's not going to be a, a, a easy path to get to the playoffs because after the Bills game, they host Dallas, the Charger game, and so far the Saturday before Christmas will be interesting, and they have the Patriots at home, which will not, which I mean, listen, who the hell knows at this point? And then they round out the season in South Beach against the Dolphins, which uh, which should be interesting considering that the Bills beat the piss out of Miami. Miami may, st- may still be in play for the one seed at the point in time that game is played. And also, if we remember the last time, you know, you took the Buffalo Bills out of the chilly confines of uh, west of uh, northwestern New York. They went out there and they basically, you know, were – cramping and were falling all over themselves because they couldn't deal with the heat and the humidity of uh, South Beach and it being essentially an element of of, uh, of 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 body shock to them so we shall see but the Buffalo Bills this may be one of the most unpredictable games to predict and to analyze going in in the you know in the Buffalo versus Kansas City matchups over the last handful of seasons because I don't love Kansas City's offense. Their offense is has been from hunger. If Travis Kelsey didn't have a big day, none of the wide receivers 75, 80% of the time have a big afternoon. Yes, they can run the football but with Isaiah Pacheco, but if it gets to a point like we saw Sunday night against Green Bay, and like we saw to a certain extent the uh, the game before against uh, the game before against uh, 
against or the two games before against Philadelphia, two games prior against Philadelphia on a Monday night. Running the football is all fine and dandy, but granted, you do have Patrick Mahomes, and if you're down, especially late fourth quarter, and you need Mahomes to make plays, you can't hand the ball off to Isaiah Pacheco when you're down seven or down eight or down ten with three, five minutes to go in regulations, you're going to lose the football game. So, and you got to put the ball, you know, in your best player's hands, obviously, and that being Mahomes, and he can't throw, and he can't throw and catch the ball himself. He's got to, you know, he's got to throw the ball to his wide receivers, and his wide receivers for the huge chunk of the season have been less than reliable uh, on a consistent week in week out basis for Kansas City. So, which which uh, which gives me cause to pause there. Then on top, and I understand that Kansas City's defense is great, but all it would take is for a couple things to break Buffalo's way, and they win the game 21-17. And then, of course, on the Buffalo side of things, um, you know, Sean McDermott and the issues that that with his defense all season long and, and him obviously getting outcoached by Andy Reid in circles, you know. Now, they've had success in Kansas City in the regular season in recent memory, but it's postseason is where it's is where uh, Buffalo has had their problems. And the way things stand with Buffalo right now, this is a glorified playoff game for them here in early December where they have, where you know, their margin <clears throat> of error is so slim going down the rest of the, you know, coming down the uh, home stretch of the season where they essentially have to win every game. I'm, maybe 10-7 and seven would be good enough to make it into the playoffs if they don't have a head-to-head tiebreaker against Cincinnati. But if I'm a Buffalo Bills fan, if I'm anybody within that team, within that facility, my goal and my objective is to go 11-6. and six. If you get that extra win and get to 11-6, and six, a lot less tiebreakers you may have to look for, look to, and and hang your hat on, and rely upon, than say if you were to go ten and seven and you have a, like a three way tie with you know Cleveland, Houston, and Cincinnati, you know, and Cincinnati or Cleveland, Houston, and Indianapolis. So get to eleven wins at least. If I was a Bills fan, that would be my mindset. That would make me feel better. Uh, if they make me feel better going forward, but I mean, do I do I trust Sean McDermott against an Andy Reid coach team on the road? I mean, and their off and their offense has been you know up and down. It's been very has been very inconsistent. If it gets to a point where Kansas City, even if they play from as minimal as a ten nothing lead, and Isaiah Pacheco has another stellar day running the football, and Mahomes or excuse me or McDermott's defense has no answers, you know, it, Buffalo could see the field very little offensively and it would be limited amounts of opportunities that uh that Buffalo would have to to deliver a counterpunch so I don't know we'll see and if Kansas City ever has if Kansas City loses and loses a second straight game and falls eight and five their number one seed hopes are are finito are, are I understand you know you know Jacksonville and and Miami and Baltimore ha- do not have easy, uh, you know, easy paths the rest of the season. But it'd be hard for me to believe that with a twelve and five record, that would be strong enough to uh, that'd be strong enough to 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 get the one to get the one of the two seed, especially the one. I I think with a fifth loss, Kansas City is eliminated from having home field advantage. 
at fate, you know, heading into the playoffs would be eliminated from having home field advantage throughout their throughout the AFC playoffs. I feel like the only way they'd be able they'd have the only chance they would have to get the AFC championship game at home again would be if they were the three of the two seed and the top two seeds fall on, you know, wild card weekend and then the divisional weekend. But I but as it stands right now, I think a fifth loss would eliminate the us saying Kansas would if at face value, bare minimum, I think it would eliminate a buy. I think with a fifth loss, if anything, can, it would force Kansas City to have to play on Wild Card Weekend, and would and and would eliminate having that week off. And they could well indeed host the AFC Championship game again, but I I think with a fifth loss, it all but determines Kansas City is going to be one of those uh, one of those. Uh, what three home teams in the AFC that's going to host the playoff game come Dr. King weekend? In my in my humble opinion, in game number five between the Eagles and the Cowboys, I think. Uh, listen, this is a this is a bigger game for Dallas in terms of Dallas wanting to win the a wanting to win the NFC East. Uh, and wanting an outside chance, the one seed is dead because they lost to San Francisco and San Francisco. And let me double check just to make. I think they may be even with the same amount of losses. Um, Eagle Forty Nineers have three losses, so they both had the same record. But with the Forty Nineers holding tiebreaker over them, the number one seed for for Dallas is pretty much out of uh, out of their out of their grasp now but in order for them to win a division get a home playoff game and get the two seed to set themselves up for potential you know to host potentially an NFC championship game if San Francisco were to get knocked out or and or to host the second uh, playoff game in that building where they've been essentially perfect for the last season or so they got to win this game at home against Philadelphia and I think they have the offensive fire. I, I you know, they've well. How much of a defense will Shaq Leonard be on the you know for the Eagles? Who the hell knows? I mean, who? It's a it's a wait and see thing. You can obviously be optimistic about it, and you know can hold out hope. Um, you know that he's going to. Uh, and let me see if he's going to play in the game, and if he is, you know how how quick will he um, have a factor? I mean, we shall we shall see, but I mean, and he, yeah, he'll play. So, but we shall see. But outside, I mean, for the rest of the defense, I'm not sure. The Eagles, or excuse me, the Cowboys' offense has been clicking on all cylinders. They could have scored more points than they did. They scored in the low mid twenties when they played them back in November, and they arguably could have scored more had it not been for self-inflicted ineptitude on the part of the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, and bad coaching by uh, Mike McCarthy. So I don't know. I mean, this. I think this could be a not the. I tell you, if you're a Cowboy fan, strap in and prepare yourselves for yet for yet another shootout in the 30s. That that's what I that's what I would say. Strap yourself in for another shootout in the 30s. And if you're an Eagle fan, prepare yourself to basically have a you know have another nip and tuck back and forth game like you had in the fourth quarter against them. Um, <clears throat> against Buffalo two weeks ago. 
So, which which I think is what's going to have to come down to in order for them to win the game. Offensively for Philadelphia, they got to be able to run the football. They can't abandon the run. They can't give up on the run early. They got to keep with that high flying offense and Dak Prescott playing his best ball that he's had arguably since his rookie season in 2016. You got to keep him and that and that offense on the sideline as much as you possibly can. Work the clock, milk the clock, and control the tempo and the pace of the game. And you can't do that putting the ball in Jalen Hurts' hands where he has to drop back and throw the football, you know, 35, 45 times because you say to hell with it, he's Jalen Hurts. Let's just tee off and 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 and, and, and pick him apart offensively through the passing game. That you're not because you're not going to win because you're not going to win the game. Uh, but they got to be able to uh, stay patient. Not bite off more than we can, more than they could chew, and let the game come to them. They do that. They run the football. Jalen Hurt, you know, his receivers do a better job getting open for him than they did against San Francisco, which I anticipate that they will. Uh, and Jalen Hurt has a bounce back game. They take care of the football, no turnovers. The 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 Philadelphia Eagles offense should have a uh, should should have a decent should have a, a decent night. Uh, you know, take the lessons that Seattle did. Uh, you know from well up from ten from eight days ago, you know, put the ball in your best player's hands and have them hunt, especially in man-to-man coverage. AJ Brown's open man-to-man coverage. There's opportunities for that be for that for him and Devontae Smith that big plays. Take advantage. That's what Seattle did, and they came close to winning uh, the game. And if Seattle had the Seahawks, if the Seahawks had the Eagles' offensive line. They would have they would have won that game. That's all there is to it. But uh, Philadelphia, if all they gotta do is fix and take fix a couple of things, and you know have the same level of uh, you know point of points of emphasis that Seattle did heading into this game Monday night, the Eagles' offense should keep them in the game. It comes down to the defense, and you know will they, how well will they be able to uh, get after Dak Prescott? Get him off his spot, have him rush throws, uh, rush through his progressions and his reads, force turnovers, uh, you know, especially critical ones, uh, their ability to get off the field on third down. The the fate of the Eagles winning this game is how well their defense plays. If they if the Eagles defense goes out there and hunts and holds the Cowboys to under twenty points, I like the Eagles chances of winning this football game because they have a better team. Better coach and a better quarterback. But if the Eagles offense is a sieve, the Cowboys look like they can do no wrong at home. Even with Mike McCarthy with his idiotic decision making, which we which we discussed uh, on last Friday's show. I so I this the the this game rests in the hands of how well the Eagles defense plays. Really not much much so the Cowboys. The Eagles defense. The Eagles defense. And if the Cowboys defense performs and comes out swinging to the point where the Eagles defense gets taken out of the game because they're on the field so much because the Eagles can't move the ball down the field like you saw against San Francisco last week, it'll be it'll be game over. It'll, it'll be thirty seven. They'll be thirty seventeen Dallas, and I'll be all she wrote. And the, and they will uh, be an essentially a virtual tie for first place in the for first place in the NFC. Because that because they are a game back, and the Cowboys winning would make them ten and three, and the Eagles would be ten and three, and they would be sitting pretty in first place, and uh, or and the Cowboys might Houghton, the Cowboys might actually be in first place because they would have a 
they would have more conference wins and more divisional wins than Philadelphia. But they essentially would still be in a virtual tie for first place at 10-3 and three with still the opportunity to get the two seed in an extra playoff game at home. And, it, and, and the Cowboys beating Philadelphia but would all but guarantee the number one seed for the San Francisco 49ers going forward. So we shall see. How the game goes on Sunday Night Football should be an should be an intriguing one. But if Philadelphia wins, keep this in mind. Philadelphia wins, they essentially close up and wrap up the division with two games against the Car- with a game against the Cardinals and then two games against the Giants. Meanwhile, the Cowboys have to go up against Buffalo, Miami, and Detroit to close out the season. It all it pretty much wraps up the division if the Eagles were to go into Dallas and get the season and get the season sweep. Not only that, it would make them it would improve them to eleven and two and they would have to have a huge letdown game to to those two teams down the stretch and or if they if the Eagles were to lose to Seattle next not this upcoming Monday night but the Monday the Monday night the 18th it would either that or the or or the Giants or the Cardinals would have to pick them off in order for San Francisco uh, who has three losses uh, in order for them to uh, get the number one seed in the NFC outright? With the 49ers, with them having the tough game against the, with them having a tough game against the Ravens on Christmas night at home. I mean, I when they and with them still being a game back of the Eagles in the loss column, even though they beat them head to head. So San and and San Francisco, they'll look back. On uh, on the on the Viking or the Brown loss, could be the deciding factor that could keep them from having home could keep them from having home field advantage, if the Eagles were to run the table and not lose another game for the remainder of the regular season. But that's where you stand with Week 14 in the National Football League. It's about that time. Oh wait, before I do that, let me get to Sean McDermott. Apparently, it came out. Uh, that he, you know, was using, he was using 9-11 as a point of uh, emphasis and as a point of motivation for his team, and it got leaked uh, by the media to the public yesterday. I mean, why anybody, how that, somebody that leaked that must want Sean McDermott fired, that's, I mean, that's, I, that's, that's, that's the clear and obvious thing I can get to it, get from it being the first thing. Second thing is, if you're Sean McDermott, why, 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 why would you want? To, why would you want um, to uh, to use that 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 um, that that sensitive and eerie day and uh, and and and. and traumatic day in American history. Why would you want to use that as a point of motivation like ever? Even if you want to use, you know, the hijackers or, you know, want to use the hijackers or the first responders as a point. Just why, why would you ever want to, want to play with, want to play with fire and bring it up just, just as an emphasis of motivation, just, just stay the hell away from it. I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I just, I do not freaking get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. But 
Anyway, I mean, we, we I mean, what are you going to do? And McDermott, if thinks if it was me running the team, he'd be as good as gone uh, this season, especially if the, uh, anyway, especially if the, uh, if the Bills don't make the playoffs and if they make the playoffs and flounder in the postseason again, he'd be as good as gone and that, and this quote unquote little scandal uh, that has made, that has surfaced over the last 24 hours wouldn't even be, you know, wouldn't even play a factor in my evaluation process for Sean McDermott. But I just, well, what a mess. 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 Anyway, week 14, National Football League. It's pick time. Only after this Sunday, you have one, two, three, Four Sundays left of the regular season. Week 14, NFL Sunday, pick time. In the league where they play. For pay. Game number one between the Indianapolis Colts, who are seven and five, going up against my six and six Cincinnati Bengals. Bengals got the job done last week, or earlier this week, I should say, on Monday Night Football, going beating and taking care of business in a thrilling 34-31 victory over Indianapolis division rival Jacksonville. They are two and a half point favorites. Indianapolis seven and five, coming off of their 31 to 28 overtime thrilling victory of their own against Jacksonville's division rival Tennessee. Injury report heading into this week is as follows: You have uh, Tyler Boyd and uh, Tyler Boyd and DJ Reader both listed as questionable for Cincinnati. Uh, Juju Brents, Amir Speed, and EJ Speed. Uh, all f- two corners, one linebacker. Your injuries for uh, and questionable for Indianapolis heading into this game on Sunday afternoon. Bengals are two and a half point favorites. I quite frankly see this as a pick'em game myself. Give me the Indianapolis Colts to win this game by the final score of 22-17. Moving things along with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers going on the road to take on the six and six Atlanta Falcons. The Falcons. Last week, beat the Jets in a defensive shit show. Not slugfest, but shit show. Uh, offensive shit show, I should say. Beating them 13-8. to The Falcons are 6-6 six and six atop the NFC South. Meanwhile, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers took care of business against the hapless Carolina Panthers last week. 21-18. The big game for Mike Evans, which we discussed the whole nine yards. The Atlanta Falcons are two and a half point favorites. Give me the Falcons to win this game by the final score of 24 to 21. The Jacksonville Jaguars are eight and four, taking on the seven and five Cleveland Browns. Last week, Cleveland uh, with Joe Flacco at the helm lost to the Rams on the road at SoFi 36-19. Meanwhile, the Jacksonville Jaguars, after mentioned last time out, lost to the Bengals on Monday night football. The injury report for this game, at least of the Friday afternoon heading into this game, 
Trevor Lawrence game time decision as we discussed. C.J. Beathard good to go in case he can't start. Travis Etienne also listed as questionable on the injury report for the Jaguars as well. Meanwhile, for Cleveland, Denzel Ward, DTR, Amari Cooper, uh, Dewan Jones, and Kareem Hunt listed as questionable for the Cleveland Browns heading into this game on Sunday. Cleveland's three-point favorites give me the Cleveland Browns to win this game by the final score of 22-17. The Houston Texans are 7-5, taking on the 4-8 New York Jets. The Jets, like I previously stated, lost at home to the Atlanta Falcons. Meanwhile, the Houston Texans were able to grind out a victory that did them wonders in terms of their seeding in the AFC playoff picture. Took care of business in a uh, thrilling fit with, on, with a thrilling finish in their win against the Denver Broncos last week. They are seven and five. Will go without Tank Dell for the remainder of the season with the broken leg, as we discussed earlier this week as well. Meanwhile, the Jets are four and eight with uh, Zach Wilson starting at quarterback. They cut Tim Boyle earlier in the week. It's just a complete circus with uh, with the New York Jets. You got solid texting. Uh, texting uh, Joe Beningo and Beningo airing out those texts on the New York airwaves heard by thousands upon thousands if not millions of people just within that city in the Stride State area. The whole thing's a mess. Give me the Texans to beat the piss out of the Jets. The final score 35-2-6. The Las Vegas or the Las Vegas. The Los Angeles Rams 6-6 six six, going up against the 9-3 Ravens. Rams Took care of business against the Ravens division rival Cleveland last week. They fly east to play the Ravens in Baltimore for the second time in three years. Ravens 9-3 coming off for the bye week. Ravens got the job done week 12 Thanksgiving Day weekend at uh, the Rams home in SoFi against the against their tenant in the Los Angeles Chargers. Ravens are 9-3, favored by 7.5. Give me the Ravens to win this game by the final score of 31-17. The Detroit Lions are 9-3, taking on the 4-8 Chicago Bears. The Bears, 4-8 last time out. The Chicago Bears coming off of their bye week, week number 12. They uh, went to the Minnesota Vikings and, some, and somehow, someway got the job done in that ugly victory on that Monday night on November the 27th. They host the Detroit Lions team that got back on track against the New Orleans Saints at Superdome last week. Uh, still licking their wounds with their with that game and that and that victory, that comeback victory in the final closing minutes of the fourth quarter back in week number 11 on Thanksgiving week, in which the uh, Lions were down two scores and they found a way to claw back and steal that game from Chicago. We shall see how uh, that affects Chicago's mindset heading into this game and how it will affect the play of the Detroit Lions. They're favored by a field goal. Give me the Lions to win this game by the final score of. 28-2-14. The Carolina Panthers are 1-11. Going up against the New Orleans Saints, who are 5-7. Saints last time out lost uh, to the aforementioned Lions. Carolina uh, just a season from hell that's going to hell. And they lost last week on the road to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Saints... Favored by five points. Give me the Saints to win this game. But final score, 31-2-21. The Minnesota Vikings are 6-6. Six six, going to Vegas to take on the Vegas Raiders. Vegas last time out 
they were on their bye week, week number 12. They lost at home at the hands of Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs after getting out to a 14-0 lead. Meanwhile, Minnesota, they were on their bye week as well. They lost in that gruesome Monday night game to the aforementioned Chicago Bears, their last game uh, a hand about two or three Monday nights ago. The Vikings are favored by three. They need this game to keep and to stay in the NFC wild card race. Give me the Vikings to win this game by the final score of 22-17. The 6-6 six six Seattle Seahawks head to Santa Clara to take on the 9-3 49ers. 49ers stood on business in Philly last week. Meanwhile, the San Francisco 49ers lost to Philly's division rival Dallas in a grind-em-out, uh, intense, highly contested game eight days ago, two Thursday nights ago. San Francisco's 11-point favorites. Geno Smith's on the injury report with the groin injury, which is screams bad news for Seattle. Their season's done. They're not making the playoffs. It's San Francisco's NFC West. We're just living in it. Give me the San Francisco 49ers to win this game, but final score of 41-2-10. The Buffalo Bills are 6-6 six six to take on the 8-4 Kansas City Chiefs. Chiefs last time out, uh, they lost, and they are losers of back to. They are losers of. Uh, they've lost two straight. They've lost two out of the last three games. They lost to Philadelphia, beat the Raiders, and then they are staring down a uh, staring down. They had to think about another loss at the hands of Jordan Love and the Green Bay Packers on Sunday Night Football just last week. Meanwhile, Buffalo coming off of the bye. bye. They're coming off of their. Uh, Soul-crushing overtime loss to the Philadelphia Eagles. Chiefs are favored by a point in a tough game to call here. But give me the Kansas City Chiefs to win this game by the final score of 21-17 over the Buffalo Bills. The Denver Broncos are 6-6 six six, uh, with their five-game winning streak being a thing of the past. Uh, having lost to the Houston Texans on the road last time out, I expect them to bounce back to going against the Brandon Staley coach team. A Brandon Staley coach team that found a way to beat the New England Patriots on the road in the rain and in the cold weather without scoring a touchdown. 6 9 was the final score, if you remember correctly. The Chargers are favorite minus 2.5, giving the Broncos to win this game by the final score of 28 13. The Philadelphia Eagles. Head down to Texas to play the Dallas Cowboys, who are 9-3. They are clicking right now. This team is hot. They are on fire. We'll see what the Philadelphia Eagles have in store for them on Sunday night. The Eagles last week got punched in the face repeatedly by the San Francisco 49ers. They head on the road to Dallas to sweep the season series of the Dallas Cowboys. Cowboys are 9-3, took care of business uh, last time out against the aforementioned Seahawks eight days ago. Their favorite minus three and a half points. Uh, with the addition of Shaq Lennon for the Philadelphia Eagles. Man, this is a, in my opinion, it's a tough game to call. Zach Cunningham, Julio Jones questionable. Rico Dwaddle listed as questionable for the Cowboys. Give me the Philadelphia Eagles to win this game. In a game for the ages. 38-35 Philadelphia. The New York Football Giants host the 6-6 six six Green Bay Packers on Monday Night Football at the Meadowlands. Uh, the Giants, all of a sudden, they're clicking and are clicking on all cylinders right now. They had the bye week last week. 
week number 12. They got the job done against the New England Patriots uh, via a missed game-winning field goal 10-7 two weeks ago. Meanwhile, the Green Bay Packers, they're humming, man. Back-to-back -back wins over two Super Bowl contenders in the Lions and the Chiefs. And you can't tell Jordan Love or Matt LaFleur nothing. They are 6-6 six and six and 6.5-point six favorites against the Giants. Give me the Green Bay Packers to win this game by the final score of 24-2. 10. 24-10. Final score for the Green Bay Packers. And finally, the Tennessee Titans are 4-8 coming off of their overtime loss at the hands of the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, fly south to take on Tua, Tyree Kellow, MVP candidate, and the 9-3 Miami Dolphins. Dolphins laid a can of whoop-ass on the Washington Commanders up in Landover, Maryland last week, beating them by 30. They're favored by 13 in this game. Give me the Dolphins to win this game by the final score of 35-2-7 over the Tennessee Titans. And that is your week 14 picks against the spread. And that is another episode of the Amatella Cateria's podcast in the books. If you like what you heard new to the program, please do not hesitate to subscribe. Follow your boy on Twitter, Instagram, threads, the works at the J Shield. Follow the show on Instagram at Amatella underscore podcast. And the show on Twitter at Amatella underscore it T-I is. Have a great weekend, everybody. Be safe, be blessed, stay healthy. And I'll talk to you Tuesday. See ya.